Okay, so uh, I'm going to annoy my wife for a second because I've, I've been on kind of a, a kick the last couple days because uh, I got inspired by something that I saw on uh, Tom Cruise. So who, is there any, are any Tom Cruise fans here? I've already talked about Tom Cruise before, I know. Um, but we recently watched uh, Top Gun Maverick. It's a great movie, etc. Um, it's an okay movie. It's filmed really well. The story is meh. But... Um, I saw an interview with Tom Cruise. I actually just saw like uh, him getting an acceptance speech, which was really inspiring. The way he like gave this acceptance speech, I thought, well, that's really classy of him. And um, so, got on this like YouTube wormhole thing. So, have you ever been on? Who's on YouTube often? Some of you, you know what a wormhole is? YouTube wormhole, rabbit hole. You don't. I'm here shaking head. So, YouTube, it just it'll. You're finished a movie. It'll give you another movie, another thing to watch, right? And after an hour and a half, you've watched. 35 different movies on Tom Cruise. Just keeps giving you more, right? The algorithm of the computer just keeps giving you more. That's a, it's a wormhole. So it gave me another thing that is like interview with uh, Jimmy Kimmel. I'm not a big Jimmy Kimmel fan. He's a late night guy, but I like Tom Cruise. And uh, Jimmy Kimmel played this game with Tom Cruise that's really funny. He's going around talking about the stunts that Tom Cruise does and how crazy he is. And, and he's like, so I just got some questions for you. And he's like, would you, yes or no, do this thing? So he's like, would you, uh, whatever, I won't give them away because I want to ask you guys. So imagine that you're Tom Cruise. So put up your hand if you would do this thing or not, okay? That's very simple. Would you parachute out of a plane? A couple people. That's easy. That wasn't even one of the questions Kimmel asked. That's a hard no. Who would not parachute out of a plane? Most of us. Okay, so here's the Tom Cruise version. Would you parasail over an active volcano? Matthew would. So Tom Cruise's answer is like, I've been over an active volcano, and it would look really beautiful. Yes, he would parasail over an active volcano. Next question. Would you leap from one plane flying to another plane in the air flying. Would you? Anybody in here? Dustin, you would. You try. All right. Uh, on Zoom, you can answer too if you want. Uh, so Dustin would try. Tom Cruise says, depending on the speed. <laughs> I would want to know the speed of the planes, but probably, yes. So next question, uh, would you ride a shark like a cowboy? Got a couple? Would anybody do that? Uh, Matthew would. You're a risk taker. So Tom Cruise's answer was actually a question, what kind of shark? Is it a great white? And Jimmy's like, of course, yes, it's a great white. And Tom Cruise is like, I've, I've swam with whales around sharks. I don't think I'd like that. I don't think they'd like that very much. So he's a no on swimming, like riding a shark like a cowboy. Uh, so anyway, these are like... He's a pretty nutty guy, and I, got, I need a couple seconds to set up my board here, so I want you to tell your neighbor or someone around you the riskiest thing you've ever done in terms of like a stunt. What's the craziest stunt you've ever pulled? And if it's nothing, make it up. So you got 30 seconds.
Do we have any risk takers in the room? Crazy things we've done? Anybody? Dennis? Was your hand up? No. Harold. Sticking your tongue on a pipe in the middle of winter. Did you pay for that? Did. You did, yes. How old were you when you did that? <laughs> Last year. <laughs> Eight or nine. Anybody else? Any other risk takers in the room? No? Melinda. Back bowl. Icy moguls. Lake Louise. By yourself. I don't know what that means, but that's scary. Yeah. Yes, that, I'm going to look that up later. Riding down the Grand Canyon on a mule, crossing the, the okay, with on the back of the mule? Whoa, on the swing bridge? Riding on the mule, going over the river. That's getting to Tom Cruise territory right there. Yeah. If you fall and you die, that's a Tom Cruise stunt. Any, anybody else? So what I heard is fighting a stampede of donkeys going up a mountain, pretty much punching and fighting through them. That sounds good. It's a mountain. It's, it's a, in my mind, it's a mountain. Anyway, that's, that's pretty cool. So thank you for sharing. I'm not a huge risk taker either, so I don't like getting hurt, and I have a lone pain tolerance. So, uh, so what I wanted to do is just briefly recap kind of the stories of Acts that we've kind of gone through to date. And we, we always have to start with, uh, with Jesus. Here he is. What did you say, Matthew? Like Jesus or maybe a hot dog. Jesus hot dog. I don't know. Okay, well, there's Jesus. Sorry, Jesus. Matthew doesn't approve. So here we go. When the Great Commission, Jesus is on the earth. He does all these amazing things. He says he's the son of God, he's put to death, he's resurrected, he meets his disciples, and he gives them the great commission, and he says you're to go out into the world, to Jerusalem, <coughs> Judea, whoops, that's not really a circle, Samaria, forgive my writing, this is a terrible, terrible circle. And the ends of the earth. And there's like a movement out. The good news of Jesus, the story of Jesus, the witness of Jesus in the world. You're going to start in Jerusalem, but you're not going to stop in Jerusalem. You're going to move out. You're going to move out of your vicinity, out of your region, out of your comfort into the ends of the world. And as we watch uh, kind of the, the story of Acts play out that Luke has written, he's actually telling this story. He's showing us how this happens. He's saying, you know, we had this thing, we met Jesus, we had this 
you know, Peter did this preach, and 3,000 came to know Jesus that day. But those were all Jewish people that came to know Jesus. But then it didn't stop there. These Greek uh, Jewish people, these Greek-speaking Jews, these Hellenists, they took on the message of Jesus, and they kind of had this, this, this problem where there's now more people than there is people to serve them. And so the apostles designate these elders who are going to be in charge of the food lines. There's not discrimination because of the language barriers and such. And they appoint these Hellenists like Philip and Stephen and, and others. Well, they start to rattle the cages of Jerusalem, and Stephen gets, he gets martyred. He gets murdered, stoned to death in the street. And, but that doesn't stop because his friend Philip actually goes out. Now he's kind of left Jerusalem because the Christians in Jerusalem are kind of getting scared. So they scatter, and Philip leaves Jerusalem, Judea, and he goes into Samaria. That's where he meets this guy, Simon the Wizard, who's kind of a, we're not sure, an ambiguous kind of charlatan, kind of money kind of guy who wants the power of God, but not necessarily with the, the full package of God, but we're not really sure who he's about. But he, he's definitely not like a Hebrew stock Jew. And so we're moving further and further and further. And then we kind of move out into the, to the, what would have been considered the end of the earth when uh, Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch on the road, leaving Jerusalem. And this crazy story with this eunuch, this black Ethiopian eunuch reading the scrolls of Isaiah aloud. Philip happened, led by the Spirit, to run into this guy, lead him to Jesus, and, and that guy goes back home, and, you know, history says that he becomes a missionary in his home country of Ethiopia, which is the ends of the known world at that time. So Luke is laying out this, this really, you know, very simple pattern that Jesus said, you're going to leave Jerusalem, you're going to go out, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, teaching them in the way in this way of life, in this way of being a follower of Jesus, being reunited with God, redeemed, whole, new creation, new people, new humanity, kind of spilling out, kind of sprouting up. And then a crazy story happens because then we meet Saul of Tarsus, And he was there at the stoning of Stephen. He was the one who was gleefully holding the coats of the, of the murderers. He's now tasked by the high priest, commissioned by the government, to kind of follow the wake of the Christians. You know, Saul's going to follow. He's like, well, it starts in Jerusalem, but it's not going to end in Jerusalem. I'm going I'm to trace these Christians all the way out and go as far as I have to to stop this heresy, this blasphemy, this awful idea of Jesus being the Messiah, being the Son of God. But then he meets Jesus on the road. And he's struck by Jesus. By the light and the sound of his voice. And remember, this is not a spirit. It's not the spirit of Jesus. This is the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus as a man. And Paul is overwhelmed, like his circuitry is fried, because his whole life is now like 
as I shared last week, it's both been completely void and completely fulfilled. Everything he thought he was doing was wrong, but right. The direction he thought he was going was wrong, but right. He thought he was doing the work of God, just in the wrong direction. Blinded by power and greed and preservation, he couldn't see what the scriptures are pointing to. That they're actually always pointing towards Jesus. And so when he meets Jesus on the road, his worldview collapses, like in seconds. And he's overcome by the moment, and he's struck blind. And if you could just imagine, if you've ever kind of had an experience like that, where you feel overwhelmed by, uh, by, by news, or something that like didn't feel good. And it could be a good experience or a bad experience. But if you've ever had a moment like that, where just your whole life kind of just changes on a dime. It can be really, really disorienting. And it can take a long time to sort that out. You know, in, in a small way, when we kind of thought we were moving last summer, when we realized that we weren't, it was like, it was like our life was moving really, 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 really quickly, and then it just stopped. We hadn't gone anywhere. And it was like a really bizarre, weird experience to have your life kind of projected in one way and just be like, stop dead. Well, now what? And so that's, a, that's a, just a small example of what Paul must have and Saul, Saul must have been experiencing. That he was raised from a small child to revere and love the scriptures. He knew the scriptures by heart. He was brilliant. He was a smart guy. He was educated and wealthy. He was rising in the ranks of the Pharisaic movement. He was in, probably grooming being groomed to like replace Gamaliel, his master. That's the kind of guy Saul was. He was like educated, ambitious, powerful, smart. And his whole life working towards a certain direction and then, woof, stops on a dime because he meets Jesus. Well, now what? Luke says that his friends, the people with him, his companions, who were with him to go to Damascus to round up the Christians in Damascus, they stood there dumbstruck because they could hear the sound, but they couldn't see anyone. And while Saul, picking himself up off the ground, you know, his, like, he's probably sweating profusely, and he's dusty, and he's like shaking, he found himself stone blind. They had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. And he was, he was blind for three days, and he ate and drank nothing. Now, the, this, the historical spot where this is supposed to have happened, um, Damascus is kind of off in the distance. He's not like five feet out of the city. It's quite a ways. And his friends now have to lead him blind. That slow walk into Damascus, and if you were Saul, what would that have been like? Your whole world collapsed. You just saw Jesus for half a second, and now you can't see, 
the self-doubt, the fear, the dread. No wonder he's not hungry. And he's being led by his companions into this city. Now, this is an interesting part in the story of Acts, the story that Luke tells us. Because if you look at a story, and I love stories, and if you, if you kind of study story and you kind of are, are observant in stories, you can see kind of a direction in a story. There's like a narrative line that kind of pushes the story forward. So there's your beginning, and then you have things that happen which lead the story one way or the other. And then, you know, the tension can rise and fall, and you introduce new characters. And, and pretty much the story of Acts at this point is pretty linear. We start with Jesus, we have the, the Holy Spirit in the upper room, and this kind of moving out into the world, just as Jesus said. And like the story is just kind of moving in one direction. And we have all these people that we meet along the way, kind of, kind of leading to this point to this Saul's conversion or his, his experience meeting Jesus. And then all of a sudden, it feels like, to me, the book of Acts has a reverse narrative. It has a story coming at it from a different direction. And it's odd. And if you pause, and you don't read it too quickly, and you let the story just kind of come to you and let it speak to you slowly, it begs a lot of questions. But we have to imagine then that we are actually now in the city of Damascus. Now I can imagine this happening a few days after Saul's experience with Jesus and and it's kind of early or like mid-morning. It's past the breakfast time and it's kind of that mid-morning glow. It's It's not super hot yet. The sun's climbing and it's getting humid and warm, but I'm, you know, you're still pretty comfortable. And I can imagine this, there's this man at his bedside, and he's praying. His name is Ananias. And he's got the room kind of dimly lit, and he's got a candle going, and he's praying to himself, and he's murmuring quietly. And he is a follower of the way. He is a follower of Jesus. And as he's praying, you know, I can see him kind of like concerned. His brow is furrowed. He's a little bit uh, nervous because he knows what's coming and he's anxious about it. And as he's praying, all of a sudden, he sees a vision of Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, Ananias. And Ananias says, yes, Lord. And I can see Ananias' kind of disposition changes. He kind of like warms and there's a smile and he sees Jesus. And, and what's interesting about this is that there's, it doesn't strike me at all that this is unique to Ananias. This feels like a regular occurrence. He's not overwhelmed. He doesn't fall to his face like Saul did. He didn't like go blind because he sees Jesus and is overwhelmed and his worldviews collapse. Seems like a pretty regular, everyday occurrence. And I was just talking to Jesus. He's like, oh, yes, Jesus, Jesus, finally, I get to, you know, we get to talk again. Yes, Lord, yes. Ananias, Jesus says, I've, I've got a job for you. Oh, Jesus, yes, what would you like me to do? I'm here for you. I'm your servant. 
Jesus says, okay, well, Ananias, I, I got this job I need you to do. I need you to leave your house and go to the road they call straight, which, sidebar, is one of the oldest roads in human history, human civilization, still active today. I need you to go to this road in Damascus on the road called straight. I need you to, to kind of wander around that road and ask for the house of Judas. And I said, yes, Lord, I can do that. Thank you, Lord. I can do that, Jesus. Yes, now go, go to the house of Judas, knock on the door, and ask for a man. His name is Saul. He's from Tarsus. And this is if you could see Ananias praying. I can see his face start to contort a little bit. And his brow shift from calm, pleasant peace to a little bit curious, a little bit nervous, a little bit frustrated, perhaps. Saul of Tarsus. Yeah, Saul of Tarsus. He's going to be in there. And you're going to go into to, to Judas' house. You're going to see Saul of Tarsus. And you're going to lay your hands on him. Because he's just had a vision that a man named Ananias has shown up. And then Ananias says, okay, Lord, hold up. Stop. Stop the train, Jesus. Are you serious, Ananias says? Are you kidding me? You're asking me to go to Saul, the persecutor, the same Saul of Tarsus that's coming to here to hunt me and my friends. You want me to go to find him and who knows who else is with him and lay my hands on him Jesus you know what he's doing right you know that he's coming to hunt us right and you know that he has the scroll from the high priest and the jurisdiction to do that right and you know what he did back in Jerusalem to all my brothers and sisters right this guy's like dragging people out of their homes Jesus Men and women leaving children to be orphaned. Jesus, this is the you want me to go to him. And Jesus says, Don't argue. Now, inflection makes a lot of difference when you read. And I think, I certainly do, I give you release and blessing to. Put the inflection that you wish into the story of the scriptures. I think you should do some research. I think you should do some exegetical work and some hermeneutics to understand what the scriptures are actually trying to say. But there be you could read this in a way that makes Jesus out to be angry and authoritarian. Don't argue, Ananias. Don't argue with me. Or... You could read it empathically. Don't argue. Ananias joins a long line of people who follow Yahweh and people who follow Jesus who are slow to respond to the call that Jesus gives them. He's just one of many people who initially say, what are you talking about? We've got a bunch. Yeah, we've got Moses. We've got Jonah. We've got Elijah. You just list them all. And Ananias is just the next in line. And don't forget Jesus, who actually asked his father to pass the cup if he could. 
before his suffering on the cross. I don't think Jesus is being authoritarian. I think he's empathically, don't argue. Jesus says to Ananias, I got big plans for this guy. This Saul of Tarsus, he's going to be the conduit between the Jews and the Gentile world, and he's going to know suffering. Don't worry about that. Just, just go. And this is where I, I imagine Ananias only as I imagine my children when I ask them to do something. It's like a slow pick yourself up, you know, slow saunter, slowly lace up his sandals. Maybe he stops to take a little, a little snack. He is probably procrastinating. I don't think Ananias is rushing out the door. I'm, in, I'm inferring inflection from the story. I don't think he's eager to, to go meet Saul, the persecutor. And he probably like opens the door slowly and he maybe wanders a little bit farther than he should off, off path. And he probably runs into his Christian friends on the way and they say, did you hear Saul's in town? Yeah, I know, he's here. You better hide. You better, like, you better make sure he doesn't catch you. Yeah, I know. And he like walks the dusty street and then he comes to the road straight. Oh, there it is. And then he wanders up and he's got an idea where Judas lives and it's not the same Judas. It's a very common name. And he goes up to the door and he knocks on the door. Hey, Judas opens. Hey, Ananias, what's up? Is your guy, you got a guy named Saul here? Yes, actually, we do. Then he opens the door, and there he looks down the room, and he can see Saul of Tarsus. Not the fearing, mongering beast that he imagined. He's kind of a shriveled man, shaking in the corner, blind as a bat, malnourished. And Ananias walks over. I mean, the sign of kind of brotherly love, that's what this is basically meaning. Family camaraderie. He takes his hands and he lays them on Saul's shoulders. And he says, Saul of Tarsus, I just had a meeting with Jesus, the same Jesus that you met on the road. And I'm here to to pray for you. And Luke says, it's, it's quite beautiful. In chapter 9, verse 17, Ananias went and found the house, placed his hands on blind Saul and said, Brother Saul, the master sent me, the same Jesus you saw on your way here, he sent me so you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. And this is, I just love the narrative. He got to his feet, was baptized. Where? I actually don't know. They ran out of the house? I'm not sure. Then he sat down with them to a hearty meal. And they ate. And none of that can be taken for granted in the narrative. That Saul's life, the scales on his eyes, not literal scales, but what was keeping him from seeing, not physically, spiritually, 
holistically, fell from his eyes, and he could now see. He saw the world for what it is. He saw Jesus for who he is. And he immediately went and got baptized, dunked in the water, and then he came back for a meal and ate a hearty meal, not just a meal. He ate and drank with his new family. And this story is so fascinating because it's actually what I'm going to call the reverse narrative. Because there's this other story happening concurrently with, with Saul's story that there are people in Damascus who are already following Jesus. How do they get there? Where do they come from? Who told them about Jesus? How are they so mature in their faith that he's just having this fluid conversation with Jesus? We don't know. That's interesting. So where along this timeline did all of these people enter the story? Good question. How did Ananias have the authority to pass the Holy Spirit on to Saul? Because wait a second, I thought Luke was saying is that that's kind of the apostolic job. The Spirit never really came until Peter or John or someone showed up. But Ananias laid his hands on Saul and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. That's fascinating. When did that happen? How did that happen? I'm curious. And there's this reverse story happening concurrently with the narrative of Luke for this divine appointment. And the thing about it is Ananias is written into the story and then he's written out. He's done. His part is over. We don't ever hear from him again. We have no idea what happens to this guy. He eats a meal with Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor, and he fades from the picture. Fascinating. But this divine appointment, what a consequential part to play in the grand narrative of Paul. The vulnerability of Paul in this moment to be destroyed, wrecked, blind, downcast. His world has collapsed. He is the most vulnerable he's been since he was a newborn. And he's met with the love of Jesus because Ananias said, okay, I can do that. And the world changes because of that interaction. And the more we get into the story, the more we see these narratives that are coming all over the place. These stories that are coming from all different directions where there are these opportunities for people to say yes to Jesus. I can do that. Most of them don't have any airtime in the narrative itself, but without them, the threads of the story just fade apart. It doesn't exist. So the question is very simple as we read this. You know, the, the Tom Cruise idea, what would you do? 
What would I do if I were Ananias? What if I were asked by Jesus to do something like that? What would I say? How would I respond? Would I drag my feet? Would I be reluctant? Would I pretend that, no, that must just be my imagination? What happens when we're asked by Jesus to do something even as simple as walk across the aisle and lay your hands on somebody and just give them a note of encouragement or a word or make that phone call or send that meal, that that little nudge that we feel that we're pretty sure is Jesus, what would I do? And the narrative of the scriptures is made up almost entirely of these encounters, of these experiences. That's the thread of the story of God in the world. It's people saying, yeah, I I can do that, Jesus. This morning, we're going to have communion. And um, maybe, Brian, you come pick away as we do this. I don't want, I'm, not in, I'm not looking for this to be like labor-intensive or anything. I actually wanted to do a kind of a, a read from a, a not-typically communion scripture that, uh, that actually comes from Paul. So Saul, who Paul, later in his ministry life, maybe 20 years later, we're not sure, He's writing to the, to the church in Corinth, and he's, he's writing in a way to remind them of what they're a part of. And it's always an invitation. So no matter who we are or where we are or what kind of journey we're on, to be in a life with Christ is always open to us. He offers that life to us at any point. And it's not overly complicated. We just kind of say, Jesus, I'd, I'd like to follow you. I want to be more like you. I want to be filled with your Holy Spirit so that I can be newly human. And when Paul is talking about this, he's saying, uh, when we drink the cup of blessing, so when we kind of come to communion, we aren't taking ourselves the blood, the very life of Christ. I mean, I mean, we are taking the very blood of Christ. And isn't it the same with the loaf of bread when we break it and eat? Don't we take into ourselves the body, the very life of Christ? When we, when we eat and drink, we take on the, the blood and the life of Christ. And then this is what's so beautiful. He says, because there is one loaf our manyness becomes oneness. Christ doesn't become fragmented in us. Rather, we become unified in him. We don't reduce Christ to what we are. He raises us to what he is. And that is a beautiful invitation. So when we take the 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 juice and the wafer, we aren't doing it individually, fragmented off. We're doing it as one. 
and we don't put ourselves into it. Christ puts himself into us. And we become more like him, which the irony is that we become more ourselves. So this morning, I'm just going to invite you to come and grab. As Brian comes up and uh, he can play a little bit. And if Jesus is asking you to do something, my encouragement to you is to just say, I can do that, Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your story. We thank you for the people in your story. We thank you that the, the world changes uh, not through grand gestures or pyrotechnics or you know, money or power. It changes through interactions through people, through relationship. A relationship that starts with you to be reconciled to you as Father, to be filled with your spirit, to know your Son, and that the relationship then becomes between people. And so, Jesus, Jesus, may we be courageous like Ananias, that if we are asked to do something that maybe doesn't make a lot of sense to us, that we would put our trust in your vision, in your overarching scope of humanity, in your story, that we would say, say yes. And may we just be willing participants in this beautiful grand story of your love in the world. And so we thank you for that in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.